Well, welcome to this final week of our series entitled More Sermons from the Mount. Uh, the kids already know where they're going. They saw me get up. But um, Children's Church is available in the back. You know, while we've uh, gone through this section, these three chapters, slowly, my prayer is we've also gone through it methodically. We've spent a lot of time in it. I'm hoping that these direct, these red-letter quotes uh, from the mouth of Jesus on the subject of obedience, that they've been a blessing to you in your Christian walk. I was curious. I looked up this week. Did, you know, it seemed like it had been a little while. We actually began the first part of this sermon series uh, when we were just calling it Sermons from the Mount on October the 8th. October the 8th. Uh, that series concluded on December 17. We picked back up with more sermons from the Mount on February 11. We're concluding that today. I pray none of you are thinking, Josh, we know. We were just starting to think this series was going to continue until Jesus returned. Well, now you know he can't come back today, right? We've already ruined that. But, but on October 8, we began with a message entitled, Blessed are the Who. This was not about the band who sang Pinball Wizard. Blessed are the who was a message about these beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5, the beatitudes. Jesus began describing uh, someone who follows him, a Christian, how a Christian should appear before him. What does a Christian look like, you might say? And in each part of this series, as we've said, Jesus has continued to describe the way his followers will walk and talk. Unfortunately, sometimes we find his followers don't always take these words seriously. Don't know what to do with these words. There's an old joke that goes around the time Jesus was finished saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart and so on. Before ending with blessed are you, are you when others uh, persecute you, rejoice and be glad. And around this time, Simon Peter spoke up and immediately said to Jesus, Lord, are we supposed to know this already? And then Andrew asked, do we have to write this down? Philip then said, Lord, I don't have any paper. James added, well, we have a test on this. And Bartholomew chimed in with, do we have to turn this in? John said impatiently, Lord, I can't hear you. Can you tell some of these other disciples to pipe down a little? Then Matthew cried, can we pause for bathroom break, Lord? Thomas said, Lord, I just can't believe the things you're saying, you know, because he was Thomas. Nervously, Judas cried out, what does this have to do with real life? And then one of the Pharisees who was present began asking to see Jesus' written lesson plan before saying, Teacher, what are the objectives in the cognitive domain in your anticipated plans for remediation? And Jesus wept. <laughs> How do we respond to these words of Jesus today? Would you pray with me before we dig in one last time to the Sermon on the Mount? Lord, I, I pray that as we uh, look into your word, one last installment of this series, Lord, that any of those questions that come to our minds, any of those things that puzzle us, that we, we, we trust you with those questions. Lord, we thank you for your word, which we know has the answers. We know you ultimately are the answer. Lord, help us to not get caught up so much in in what troubles us, but in the foundation, which is what you've offered us in your word. 
Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us, Lord, to put all of our faith in who you are. In your name I pray, amen. The question this morning is the church succeeded in looking like its founder. Has the church succeeded? Would you say it has? Would you say it has? Would the world say that it has? One author writes about three secular voices. Voices that have been critics of the church. Now, they've been critics of the church, but these voices, these people, have also uh, spoken of their admiration for the words of Christ. People that you might say were impressed by the Sermon on the Mount, impressed by the message there, less impressed by what its hearers have done with it, less impressed with where we've gone. Three names, three notable people from quite different eras, walks of life. Let me throw some names out this morning. Benjamin Franklin, Gandhi, singer Mick Jagger. <laughs> this is serious. <laughs> Wouldn't you like that? That's a whole other setup, right? Franklin, who was no friend to Christianity, the author writes, is quoted as saying, I think Christ's system of morals and his religion, as he left them to us, are the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. That's Benjamin Franklin. Gandhi and Mick Jagger, either one, are both quoted as saying, you're not going to find a lot of quotes attributed to both of these people, I promise. Gandhi and Mick Jagger are both quoted as saying something to the effect of, I have no problem with Jesus. I have no problem with Jesus. It's Christianity that troubles me. Christianity that bothers me. So it would seem on the surface that the world sees something different, right? Something countercultural, even, to what the world is used to. As this author notes, Christ's delivery of the Sermon on the Mount is immediately preceded by the section in which Jesus starts to become widely known and recognized. People know who he is. This 2,400-word document called the Sermon on the Mount was more than an introduction to what Jesus stood for. It was foundational, foundational to the man himself. So it stands to reason that if the Christ follower is actually following these words of Christ, actually doing what they say, the world will acknowledge some kind of difference. Jesus himself acknowledges these words, and we're going to dig into these words right now, as foundational. He comes out and acknowledges this, and revolutionary. There must be something there. Turn with me to Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. This is how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. This is the big finale. He says this, verse 24, Everyone then, everyone then, who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. That's the end of verse 27. We've got two, two more verses of text this morning, but we'll stop there a minute. The question stands, fellow Christ followers, again, you find it interesting. How does the world acknowledge some kind of 
pragmatic solution, if you will, in Jesus, like, like Franklin did. Does the world see that? While also observing something pro problematic about Christ's followers, like so many have done, like Gandhi here, Mick Jagger, these people have done. Well, perhaps there's some confusion, some confusion on exactly where some Christians stand. Where exactly we stand. The question this morning is, are we living on solid rock? Are we living on solid rock? In our message last week, if you remember, if you remember when you were going through the text last week, we, we read through Christ's words on the subject of fruit bearing. If you remember in that message, there were only two kinds of trees. A true Christian, a, a Christ follower is bearing good fruit for the kingdom. A counterfeit Christian, if you remember from that message, is basically fruitless, basically useless. That's it. Those are the two choices for every single one of us. Jesus drove the point home about obedience by saying the fruitless tree gets thrown in the fire. Verse 19, Matthew 7. Ouch. Difficult to miss what he's saying there, right? Thrown in the fire. The week prior, we talked about two different kinds of gates. We talked about uh, a wide and a narrow gate with two different paths, one to life and the other to destruction. The idea of either or, as we notice, can't be avoided in Christianity. That comes from its founder. That comes from Jesus. We're either following Jesus or we're not following Jesus. He's made this point time and time again. He ends our sermon today on it in triplicate. And yet, it seems, far too many of us are still trying to keep a foot in both worlds. Trying to keep a foot in both worlds. Far too many of us want to show off a, a church membership on Sunday morning and then live like the rest of the world the rest of the week. But it's an either or. Far too many of us want to mouth the words to a Christian song during a worship service and then sing the praises of a worldly lifestyle after we leave the church building. This is what the world sees. Far too many of us want to celebrate the sweet sound of amazing grace and love and mercy between 9.30 and 11.30 and then walk out of these doors and go back to ignoring the needy and hating our neighbor. So the question this morning as we end this series with the third example, the third metaphor, the third illustration, where exactly do we stand? Because we only can go down one way or another, Christ's way or our own way. We can only bear good fruit in Jesus or be useless for the kingdom of God. And we can only build our lives on one kind of foundation or another, on a foundation that's solid, lasts forever, or on a one that's shallow and will only last for a few years. Every person in this room, just as in the previous weeks as we've talked through these examples, is already building on one foundation or the other. We're either building our lives on solid rock or on shifting sand. Which is it for you? Which is it for you? When the world looks at your life, not when the world catches wind that, that you go to church on Sunday morning, not when the world uh, reads a, a scripture on the back of your car, not when the world hears that you listen uh, to this Christian radio station or that podcast, but when the world sees you in action, which they're going to do, do they see the footsteps of the Son of God ahead of you? Do they see someone standing on solid rock? Or are you building a life on someone or something other than Jesus?
You know, it's certainly the case that we don't know how solid we're standing until we have to endure some, some wind or rain, right? Sometimes we can maybe guess at a storm system's potential damage. If you live in or near a mobile home and there's a tornado in the forecast near you, it's probably a good idea to seek shelter elsewhere. We've all seen designated storm safety areas in schools and hospitals. But, you know, we don't always have a frame of reference when it comes to what's categorized as an act of God. I'm not a big fan of that designation, act of God, anyway. You know, there's a big difference between what God causes and what God allows. But let's take the idea of storm damage to another level. Last year, Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria became three of the five costliest hurricanes in U.S. history. This is according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. According to an article in USA Today, Harvey, with its $125 billion in damage, that's a lot of damage, came in second only to Hurricane Katrina in 2005. This is on record as costing about $160 billion in damage. But Hurricane Harvey affected 13 million people. 13 million people, that's a lot of people. This is Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, Kentucky. Uh, maybe some of you have stories or, or have stories within your family or, or uh, group of people you know from this time. Over 70 killed, 39,000 people were forced out of their homes in the Houston area within the first 24 hours. That's some storm. That's some storm. The White House actually announced in September... They believe about 100,000 homes were affected in some way by Hurricane Harvey. 100,000 homes. Safe to say that these recovery efforts, they're, they're still continuing. They're still going on. And sometimes we wonder, I don't know about you, but when I see this, when, when I hear about these things, I can't help but wonder, why? Why is it we aren't given a heads up? Why is it we can't know about these kinds of catastrophes ahead of time. You ever feel this way? Do you ever think this way? You know, if God is so good, why doesn't he tell us to prepare for the rough weather that's ahead? Why doesn't he just let us know that the storms are heading this way in life? And the answer to these questions, my friends, is that he has. He has. We're not given the details of the next approaching storm. God doesn't give us estimated dollar amounts of destruction. But God has finished the most famous sermon of all time in his word with a very distinct warning about impending weather. The hard rain is coming. The hard rain is coming. Jesus says, count on it, plan on it, prepare for it. If you've listened to my words, verse 24, the words I've given you, if you obey them, when those storms arrive in your life, when the hard rain falls, which it's going to, verse 25, you'll be spiritually protected. You won't be destroyed. You won't be without hope. You won't lose all that you've spent your life building for yourself. If, if you listen. Conditional. So God knows it's easy for us to get discouraged. He knows these are going to come, these, these Harveys, these Irmas, you name it. He knows this. I know sometimes we look at this text. I know sometimes we don't look at the text, maybe. We think, why didn't this say it's going to be easy? 
The skies are going to be clear. We'll get to build wherever we want on whatever we want using whatever material we want. We'll be able to build all the stuff our dreams are made of, and those dreams can never crumble. But Jesus says the exact opposite of this. The exact opposite in our text. What does he say? Don't be surprised by the storms. They're coming your way. They're going to happen in your lives. Don't waste your time. Don't build a house. Don't build a life upon that which is temporary. Only build upon my words. And I've given them to you right here. Solid rock. Nothing else. This is how you can withstand what's ahead of you. The thing that's discouraging is you get the impression sometimes that non-believers know the storms are coming better than the believers. They just don't have the answer in how to weather those storms. But believers have the answer, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus says in verse 25, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. It doesn't mean we're going to understand why God is allowing for this weather. He doesn't give us the answer. He doesn't give us the reason. Maybe we want to say, surely not, Lord. Surely you don't expect your followers to have to batten down the hatches like everybody else. Do we remember some other words Jesus has given us? Matthew 5, 45, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. So we can prepare for these storms in our lives. Maybe we think, why? Maybe we think, why Jesus? What does it make any difference? Have you ever been there in your life? You know, if the weather's going to be rough anyway, if it's not going to make any difference, what does it matter where I stand? And the answer is right here. It did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Only the solid rock can withstand the weather when it comes. Sometimes I start to wonder, and maybe, maybe you do too, Sometimes I start to wonder, what drives people in and out of the faith? Why do so many people come and go, right? Why do people get excited for a little while, and then that leaves, and so do they? What, what, what makes them uh, come in and out of our, our churches? And then I remember, you know, I don't know. I, I can't uh, comment on what storms are taking shape in, what's wreaking havoc in their lives. All I can do is pray that they're building on the foundation of Jesus. My dad once said, building a life upon Jesus might not make your life easy, but it might make it bearable. We're all building on something. So where are you building? What are you building your lives upon? What are you building your lives upon? Let's answer this question honestly. Is it personal pleasure? Is it status, security, respect, material wealth, job security, being a people pleaser, just trying to be a good person, just trying to make everybody happy? Keeping up a personal habit or lifestyle or routine, something comfortable? What are you building your life upon? Is it solid? Is it going to hold you forever? There's some big storms. Some big storms on the horizon. Economic hardship, poor health, strained family relations, the losing of loved ones. These are storms we're going to have to weather. They're going to test the strength of our foundation. If it helps, consider that there are those who would probably, if they could, trade many of us building projects in a heartbeat. 
You may not be familiar with the following name. Joseph Bondarenko. Mr. Bondarenko, according to one author, was born and raised in the old Soviet Union. He was, quote, raised under the heel of atheism. And Joseph was one of those who resisted that regime. Like, like his grandfather, father, and others who were persecuted for Christ, Joseph demonstrated uncompromising faith, devoting his life to preaching the gospel. This took a lot of patience, took a lot of courage. In Joseph's own words, quote, The first time I encountered open hostility for being a Christian was at school. I was insulted, my grades were lowered, I was kicked out of class because of Christ. Teachers used to ridicule me in front of the whole school assembly in order to disgrace me. School officials threatened to take me away from my parents because of Jesus. He continues in his own words, Though many evangelical Christians were arrested and exiled to Siberia, few storms happen in Siberia. Those who remained at large worshipped secretly in homes and apartments at this time. He goes on, My family actually held meetings in our house for believers. We would baptize at night for fear of being spied upon. During this whole time, I became more outspoken as an evangelist. I was eventually threatened by the Young Communist League and the KGB. In the time, the rector of the institute I attended gave me an ultimatum. God or diploma, make a choice. You can't have both. Bondarenko continues, God gave me strength and courage, and I made my choice. After six years of study, I was expelled from the Institute of Marine Engineers. Joseph goes on. In the 1960s, the Soviet government tried to destroy the church from within. Recruited men were planted in the leadership. Authorities banned children and young people from attending church services. Many ministers became paralyzed by fear. When the church was required to cooperate with KGB agents and submit to their regulations, I became among their most wanted criminals for Jesus, for being a Christian. For serving the Lord, I had to endure three unjust prison sentences and nine years in Soviet prisons. I'd like to share just a little more of Joseph's testimony. Quote, at 26, I was in prison, continuing to testify about God to the other prisoners. For every new believer, I was punished. I was punished. I took the heat. Since I did not agree to sign false accusations and I refused to cooperate, I was beaten. I spent long, time, uh, long periods of time in dark dungeons and then solitary confinement. But the Lord was faithful. His protection evident. And when we look at this story from... Not very long ago, we see a man who was sustained in prison, sustained in persecution, not because he was a model citizen, but because of where he stood with God. How did he get through it? How did he get by? He explains, quote, I knew many scripture passages by heart. I believed God's promises. When I suffered, these scriptures helped me to remain faithful. Despite KGB threats, despite attempts to destroy my faith, by God's grace, I was released from prison in the summer of 1969. And the author concludes, God surprised everyone by eventually breaking up the mighty Soviet Union years later. Proof 
of shifting sand. Proof of shifting sand. Systems, countries, platforms, parties, governments, these things change. But neither Christ, nor the gospel, nor the Great Commission will ever change. And I wanted to share this story. I know it's an extreme example. I didn't want to share it to make light of what we go through, what we're going through every day. I know we don't go through that yet. I don't share it to, to make light of whatever hardships or trials you're going through, but stories like these, I pray, give us present hope, no matter what awaits us in the future. I, I know full well we live in a, in a free country. We live in a very advantageous point on the timeline. But we don't have to turn on the news. We don't have to turn on social media for very long to see that foolishness is all around us, right? Do we know what storms we'll weather as individuals, as a community, as a nation? No, we don't. We have no idea. But like Joseph Bondarenko, we can make a choice right now. Where are we going to build? What will we build upon? How will we stand eternally? On solid rock? No matter what is changing. No matter what is crumbling all around us. There's just something about the authority of Jesus. There's something about an authority that's noticeable by people recognizing even if there's a spiritual disconnect with the church, there's something foundational about the man. When Jesus is finished preaching, he goes on. Turn with me to verse 28. What does he say? The Bible says this about Christ's Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Get this. Many of these people, picture the scene, standing there, listening to this man Jesus preach all this time from the mount. Yeah, sure, they would have understood the building metaphor. They would have understood why he used the building metaphor. It's no wonder he uses it. It would have hit close to him, probably for those uh, that followed him, his acquaintances. Jesus was the carpenter's son. He'd build a few buildings on a few foundations. But can you imagine their astonishment at the words, what they were implying, at his teaching them with religious authority? Jesus had no connections to anyone of religious importance at the time. He didn't exactly have a doctorate in religious studies or whatever they handed out down at the Sanhedrin. I don't know. He was no doctor of Nazareth. Jesus didn't keep the most esteemed company in the world. Either. He was kind of an everyman. He, he hung out with a bunch of uh, young fishermen and a tax collector and the like. From those listening in from outside that circle, how could he teach in the manner that he did? What gave him the right? By whose authority was Jesus giving such commands to people, making such claims about how, who he was? And the answer to these questions is by his own authority. By his own authority. And you could tell. We can tell today. It's interesting to note Jesus didn't teach like the religious people of his day. Charles Spurgeon notes that, that uh, uh, Jesus didn't quote rabbi this and rabbi that, but he spoke from his own knowledge, as I quote Charles Spurgeon. 
Jesus wasn't what the people expected. Jesus isn't what the people expect today. And so Christ followers, join me in responding to his words, not to just regard them as good for Bible study, but foundational for living. It's not what the people expect. It's not what the world sees coming. Let's respond like Jesus. The world does not even expect this from Christians. But this shifting world is yearning to turn on something solid, and we can see it all around us by what people are embracing. And I know the temptation is, let's build upon the foundation of what everybody else is doing. But let's build like the carpenter's son. Let's build like the carpenter's son. The whole world is trying to pull us one way or the other. Instead of building, I don't care which way you go. You can shift to the left, you can shift to the right. But let's stand solely upon the rock. That won't be easy, but it will be solid. Just a moment. Each and every, each and every person in this room will have an opportunity to voice publicly where is it you do stand if you haven't done that? Maybe, maybe for the first time, maybe uh, to return back home. Because Christ has offered us shelter from the storms of life. The only one that's going to hold up in time. But we have to accept it. It's not going to be forced upon us. We can stand anywhere we want to stand. We're going to have a, a word of prayer and move forward into a time of invitation. I don't know where you stand this morning. I don't know what you've been building a life upon. But my challenge to you is that if that ground underneath you is shifting, even a little, that you re-examine your footsteps before the Lord. Re-examine where you stand before Him. And if you do have a public decision to make before the Lord, and before these people, we're going to have time for you to make that decision. We've been going through these words of Christ. These words from the Mount for the past several months. The time has come. It's no day like today. If you haven't already, to build upon these words. On Christ. On the words of Christ. On Jesus. The solid rock alone. You can stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. There are so many that claim authority. And we're so tempted to place ourselves on so many things, on so many platforms, to listen to the words of so many voices. There are so many ways we can turn. But Lord, help us to build upon the rock. There's only one place that's solid, Lord, and that's, that's on you. God, help us, help us to remember your love for us. Help us to remember your love is so unfathomable. 
It's a dying kind of love. That's how much we mean to you. And Lord, help us to remember that this kind of sacrifice, this self-sacrifice, it's, it's the only it's the only kind of love we want for our lives. God, as we look around us, we see a world that's spinning, spinning and it's shifting. Help us, Lord, to be the ones that carry the message, carry the gospel, and to be a witness to it. Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for having the authority. Lord, we know no matter what, what storms face us, no matter what we're going to have to weather, and no matter what the years ahead have in store for us, we know, Lord, that you are in control. Help us to remain with you. It is in the name of Jesus Christ I pray these things. Amen. And again, we extend this invitation one more time to you this morning. If you haven't yet made Jesus Christ your rock, the only place to stand, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this invitation, the solid rock. And to think about these words in light of your own life. Where do you stand? What have you been building? What have you been spending your time doing? Has it been kingdom? Has it been for the kingdom? Has it been upon that rock? Think about the answer to that question this morning and week as we stand and sing the solid.